It is good to see you all here this morning. I know that it's the, the big holiday weekend and people like to travel and stuff, but we're glad that you're here and uh, just to worship together. I do want to stop and just, before I go any further, just take a moment and pray. Uh, the past couple of weeks have been difficult when we look at some events that have taken place up in Buffalo, New York, New York and down in Texas with some shootings, and our world just seems to be a mess. And... Uh, and that mess is impacting families in a, in a disastrous way. So if you would, just, just pray with me for a moment. Father, we, uh, we know we lived in a world that is it's troubled. It's struggling day by day with the ability to maintain peace and serenity, love and harmony. And Father... I just want to lift up these families that all of a sudden as they wake up in the morning they've got a family but by the time they go to bed at night that family has been damaged greatly. And Father, it's because people just, they're angry. They are depraved as your word would say. And they take out their angst against others who are seemingly innocent. Father, I ask that you give us the ability to rise up as a church in this nation, that we would set the standard for life that is holy and just, righteous and good, that, Father, we would then draw people to live that way as well, because we try to live that way, but we know it's, it's difficult. So we're going to ask that you, through your Spirit, give us the strength and ability to do that. And Father, that somehow that through our words and our actions that we can reach out to those around. It doesn't matter whether they're in Texas or New York. They're right here in, in, in Union. The people who need to be loved, they need to be cared for. And Father, may you place within us that desire to make a difference for your kingdom's sake. Lift up these families. Father, bring them your comfort as only you can do. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 1. And we're going to just kind of read through section 18 through 32 and then get into it. It's a pretty, um, pretty rough passage of Scripture that we've got to unveil. That's why we're taking four weeks to kind of go through it, because there's so much in these few verses. Last week, Alan jumped in and started this passage, and, and, and uh, we're going to kind of take it from a different angle today and, and, and the next couple of weeks. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, I want to believe that, that I'm a law-abiding citizen. How many of you would agree that you also are law-abiding citizens? I mean, I think that's where I am. Uh, but have you ever accidentally run a stop sign? <laughs> How about rolled through one as you were making a turn? Now, my wife's been watching these, this judge out of uh, Massachusetts or whatever, Rhode Island, and, and he's a traffic court. He's a funny guy, but it's, it's always, I stopped, and then you watched him kind of roll through, you know. They don't really, did their brakes even go on? You question these things, you know. Have you ever exceeded the speed limit? Hmm. Have you ever changed lanes or turned a corner without using your blinker? I mean, most of my infractions, and, and, and definitely in the area of motor vehicle, um, even though I call myself a law-abiding citizen, I seem to break those things from, from time to time. Now, it's not always the case, but, but even though I call myself a law-abiding citizen because I'm trying to do my best to stay within the law, and I'm not really hurting anybody else, right? Um, it, it doesn't... It, it, maybe, I, you know... I mean, I consciously try to drive the speed limit, but when I'm not really paying attention, what happens, right? You know, we, we're just following the crowd. You know, you got to stay up with the traffic. I, you know, I try to do proper lane changes. I, I try to use my blinkers and, and look and make sure I'm not cutting anybody off when I do those things. And, and my, my motivation is twofold. First off, I'm an adult with responsibilities, and I want to make sure that I fulfill those. And second, I'm a minister of the gospel, and I'm supposed to lead as an example for other people, right? And so you've got that little church sticker on the back window of your car, and, and they look at you, oh, he's, you know, what's going on there? But no matter how much I try to be good, 
I'm bad. I mean, I, I break the law. There's no way around it. I, I, I am not innocent. But what about someone who encourages someone else to break the law? Who challenges them to, to do something that they probably ought not do. There's a movie back in the 1970s, Smokey and the Bandit. You remember this one, right? right well, here, here's the thing. The bandit, he, he's been hired to transport a, a, a truckload of beer uh, from Texas to Alabama. And, and, and some of the illegal things that ensue throughout that thing. The sheriff is out to get him and he's trying to stop him. But all of a sudden, people begin to take his side. And they are doing everything they can to help him escape the law's clutches. And they're cheering him on to break the law and to do what is bad. We still have people today who are cheering others on to break the law and go against the standard of how we're supposed to live. I mean, these people were guilty of the obstruction of justice. They're not innocent. And in cheering on the criminal, they also become criminals. As Paul begins to write to us in, in the book of Romans, the reason for his letter to them that the fallen nature of man, especially in this passage of Scripture, he's speaking about the Gentiles, those who weren't Israelites. We are immediately aware of the rationale behind man's rebellious nature is birthed within their suppression of the truth about God. If we can squelch God and make him not to be known, then we don't have to deal with his laws. And so this posture of unrighteousness leads to the rejection of the knowledge of the revealed God, and the refusal then to acknowledge the truth ultimately leads to behaviors that Paul needs to confront. And so he does that here. Let's begin with this aspect of suppressing the truth there in verse 18 of chapter 1. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness do what? Suppress the truth. Now that Greek word for suppress, katecho, which means here to, to hold down, to, to, to suppress it, to keep it from, from moving. Some versions, even like the King James Version, I think does not do it justice because the way in which it translates this word it says to hold the truth. Well, when I think of holding the truth, I'm thinking, you know, this is good. I'm, I'm, I'm keeping the truth. That's not what it means. It means holding it down, not letting the truth show its head, not letting it be revealed. So it's holding it there. All right. The truth is in there, and they have access to this truth, and they have knowledge of this truth, but because of their unrighteousness, they are deliberately ignoring the truth about God, and they drive it into their subconscious, and they replace it with a falsehood, what they want. So we suppress the truth, and we do what we want. 
I mean, it shows a fundamental truth, namely that the basic problem with all sinners is not their intellect, not their knowledge, because they know about the truth, but they don't want it, so it is about our will. And Paul is speaking about the willful suppression of the known truth, and so he refers to this again when he even writes to the church in Ephesus. So in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 and 18, Paul makes this statement when he's speaking again about Gentiles. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. How do they walk? In the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They know the truth, but they don't want you to know it. And they don't want to live by it, so they, they hold it down, they suppress it, they squelch it, they, they try to push it away. Likewise, Peter, when he writes to the church in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 5, he also affirms this is the primary problem that people have in our world against the Creator. So he says in 2 Peter 3, 5, For they deliberately overlook this fact. That the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of the water and through water by the word of God. Catch that? He says they deliberately overlook this fact. They don't want to deal with it. Now, another version, the Holman Christian Standard Bible puts it this way. They willfully ignore it. They deliberately and they willfully ignore it. So I think what Peter and, and Paul are saying, it supports what's being said here in Romans chapter, eight, chapter 1, verse 18, and, and clearly declare that anyone's ignorance of God is because it's a deliberate act on their part to ignore it, to suppress it. And I've often wondered, how do intelligent people not see this? How is it that people who are so smart that they don't get it? Well... It's because they don't want to get it, and so they deliberately choose to ignore the existence of God and therefore the truth of the Bible, and, and, and so they're not going to be motivated by rational arguments because they're choosing to say no to God. Paul says that they suppress this truth in unrighteousness. I mean, it's an attempt to escape the guilt and the penalty that is deserved them because of their actions of sin. Hugh Ross, in his book, The Creator in the Cosmos, he reports that, that an example of this, he's speaking to a group of science uh, professors about the clear evidence all around us of God creating the world and the universe. And so this is what he says. He says, after this conversation this, with them, he says, I conversed with four physics professors and asked for their response. Now, one of the four said he could not deny the truth of my message. Did you catch that? One of these four physics professors says to him, I can't deny the truth of what you just said. The others, they nodded in agreement. And then he said, I asked if they could see then the rationality of turning over their lives to Jesus Christ. He says that another one of the four spoke up saying, yes, they can see that, but <laughs> but they weren't ready to be 
that rational, all right? The statement was not a brush-off, and he says, each man went on to name his reasons for resistance, and he said one of his confessed unwillingness was to give up his sexual immorality. We recognize what you're saying, that God created this universe, that there is a God. We recognize that it will be good for us to surrender ourselves to Jesus Christ, but we don't want to do that. It's, it's, it's true what you're saying, but if we do that, that means we can't live the lifestyle we want to live. So, no, we don't want to believe it. Sinners simply do not think straight. Sin's caused a, a perversion or a twisting of our thinking and our thought processes. And it's all tied into the aspect of the image of God and who He is. Romans 1.21 says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They became futile in their thinking. Futile. What is futile? The word that's used here is matao in, in Greek, and it, and it simply means it's empty, it's vain, it's worthless. Paul uses that same word when he wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, when he said, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. The preacher in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes, says vanity, vanity. Everything is vanity, meaningless. It's the same aspect here. And in verse 21, Paul brings up the foolishness of their hearts. Now, to the first century individual, the heart was the, was the center of, of the soul and of the mind and, and of, of the spirit of man and who he is. Foolish, asenitas, it means unintelligent, senseless without understanding. Matter of fact, Moses Lord in his commentary on the book of Romans says, probably the best translation for this word is stupid. They're just stupid in their way of thinking. The, the sense of the bluntness of their spiritual perception, they just don't get it. And again in verse 21, Paul says, the foolish hearts were darkened darkened. It's an interesting way that he uses. I mean, it echoes what Paul's letter is to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18. He says, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. In the scripture, light is an, anal is an analogy of truth and the word of God. And so he's saying, when we harden our heart, we're refusing to let the light of God in. And we want to stay in the darkness. John says, we're supposed to walk in the light as he is in the light. But instead, we're walking in the dark. We're claiming to be in the light at the same time. Let's move on to verse 22 of Romans 1. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. They became fools, translates a verb there, uh, moreno, 
which is the word where we get our English word moron. All right, claiming to be wise, they became moronic. They became morons. They became fools. In other words, they made fools of themselves and apply it specifically to their moral reasoning, knowing what is right and wrong, which can never be separated about how we think about God. All right, Dinesh D'Souza in his book, What's So Great About Christianity, he, he has written this about the modern militant atheists in our day today, such as Daniel Dinette and Richard Dawkins. Uh, they arrogantly refer to themselves, they like to joke and refer to themselves as the brights. Uh, you know, so that's what they saw themselves as. You all are, you know, not too bright, but we're bright. And Dinesh basically says, well, they ought to really refer to themselves as the dims because they're not letting the light of God in. Connected with this suppression of the truth about God is ungodliness and unrighteousness. And this is why they suppress the truth. It's not just the result of poor reasoning, but it is ultimately the result of sinful will. They want to be this way. They want to live opposite of God's standards. So that brings us to this second point. It's really rebellion against God is what it comes down to. Mankind is always rebelling. That's, that's what we have in our lives. So let's look again at, at Romans 1, 21 to 23, then verse 25 and 28. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in the thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So what it all begins with is just this intellectual rejection of God involving a perversion of the thinking process. So, so it's described here in these verses. We know we're without excuse, he says, because it's obvious what we have seen in creation, even the invisible nature and quality of God and who he is. And yet we're going we're gonna to deny it so that we can do things our way. So he says they exchange the truth of God for a lie. I mean, that's the inevitable result of suppressing the truth is that lies then have to take its place. But they consider their lie to be their truth. And what's true for you may not be true for me. And so we live in a world, as they say, with no absolutes. And that's an absolute statement, right? See, the idea of God to them is not worthwhile. Dakimadso, which means to test, to approve, to deem worthy. It's, it's used in the essence of examining things and people and ideas. Matter of fact, it can also be used in the metaphorical sense of testing things like buildings 
or metals to see how pure they are and how true they are to those things and how strong and stable those things are. It's a play on words that he's using here. Sinners basically say that the idea of God doesn't pass the test of my reasoning. And he goes on in verse 28 using the same kind of word it's a root word. He says, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. That word for debased is the word adokimos, which means useless, failing the test, worthless, rejected, cast away. It's a play on words with dokimazo because it's the same root word from that previous point. And so what God is basically saying when he uses this word, he says, nah, the problem is you're the ones who don't pass the test. You're the ones who don't muster you're the ones who don't prove yourselves to be right so God gives them over to this debased mind you see they judge the idea of God to be worthless so God says okay you can be surrendered to your own worthless ideas and let's see what happens so some who do these things are truly atheistic, but not always. Because sometimes we find ourselves in this pattern too, don't we? And yet we still believe in God, but yet we're, we're living our lives trying to suppress and ignore what he wants us to do and do it our way. So the practical expression of such rebellion, he tells us here in verse 23, is idolatry. We're not worshiping God because He should be worshipped. Instead, we're putting other things in His place, and maybe it might be money, or it might be the job, or it might be the, the family, or it might be whatever, the vacation home. We're finding something to put in its place so that we worship that instead of Him. And in Romans 1.23, he says, They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and, and, and birds and animals and creeping things. You see, the immortal, glorious, transcendent God is exchanged for something that's no greater than me. Matter of fact, a lot of these things are lesser than us, but we exchange Him for them. Throughout history, we see how man has created other gods, Mount Olympus. <laughs> Boy, those gods were a mess. All right? If you were in Egypt and you became Pharaoh, you ascended to godhood. If you were in Rome and you became Caesar, you too. The Egyptians said you too should be a, a god. But he mentions things like birds. You know, the Egyptians worshipped a couple of birds in particular. There was Horus, who was a falcon, and Thoth, who was an ibis. And they worshipped them and Animals, well, literally the word animal is, is four-footed creature or quadrupeds is what that word really is in our text today. The Egyptians also worshipped the cat, Bastet. And the bull is almost always, in a lot of cultures there, worshipped as an idol. Matter of fact, in Psalm 106, verses 19 through 21, it says that they made a calf in Horeb and they worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Who's he speaking of? He's speaking of the Israelites. 
And he's speaking about what they had just done just moments, days after God brought them out of Egypt, out of their land of slavery, and they'd gone through the ten plagues and the miracles that transpired, and they'd walked across dry ground where a sea once was as God was rescuing them from an army that was coming after them. And Moses had been on the mountain too long. Oh, no. What are we going to do? Let's make a god. And so they made a calf in which they could worship, a golden calf. How do we go so quick to suppressing God in our lives? But that's what they were doing. Creeping things and reptiles. The serpent is commonly worshipped in a lot of places around our world. Even in Egypt, they worship the crocodile god Sobek because of the Nile, you know. So he's, he's a god, right? We have people today in India who worship cows. And they let the cattle go wherever they want. If it wants to come through your house and into your kitchen, so be it. In Cairo, Egypt, you can go to the Cairo Museum, and there they have a room that's dedicated and simply says, God's. And there are thousands upon thousands of gods in that museum. Now, if you go into India, you will find that India has a classification of over 330,000 gods. Anything and everything really becomes a god. And they worship those things even today. But Isaiah tells us in his 44th chapter that all these idols, they are impotent. They're perishable. They're mortal. So in Romans 1.25, Paul says, Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. See, the only true God is the one who created those things. That's the one we should be worshiping. Matter of fact, when Paul goes into the Areopagus and he discovers that they've got this big room filled with gods as he's walking around the city there in Athens, or he's, my goodness, you guys got a lot of gods that you worship here for as Romans. And I even came across one that says to an unknown god, just in case you missed him. He said, well, let me tell you who he is. In Acts 17, he lays it down as he begins to explain to them this god with the invisible qualities, this God who is the creator of all heaven and all earth, who made every man in this world from nothing. And from one man, he birthed the nations. See, it's a beginning point of worldview, is where do we see God? To worship and serve any created thing rather than the creator is really, Paul says, the epitome of stupidity. It's foolish, but we do it. The importance of acknowledging God as the transcendent creator cannot be overemphasized. It's, it's absolutely fundamental to everything else. I mean, it's the primary truth for a biblical worldview and how we should live within our world today. To realize the distinction between creator, including oneself, Creature and creator is the basis of all virtue and morality. And by denying the creator 
his rightful place, idolatry then strikes at the foundation, the heart of everything that we do in life. Explorer Dukan Gersi, in his, in his recent book called Faces in the Smoke, says that most, not third world, but most fourth worlders have a vague idea of at least one main God. But they regard him as remote and distant and uninvolved. But they recognize there probably had to have been a God that created these things. But they don't deal with him. Instead, on a more everyday personal level, they deal with the lesser deities, which they call the world of spirits, which in reality are demons. When they think of these invisibles, Paul's saying here, it does not mean that every Gentile, however, has reached to this point of depth of depravity and idolatry, but his point is that we have all participated in this point, in, in this process to one degree or another, so we are all really without excuse. Because at some point, we have put something or someone above our relationship with God and acknowledging Him as the one in control. Well, when we rebel against God, the next thing really comes into this is we rebel against other people. So rebellion corrupts our relationships with others. Let's go on, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And in verse 26, he says, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations with those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteous evil, covetous, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I think there seems to be some kind of cause and effect that goes in here within some of these verses. Verse 24, 26, 28, he says, Therefore, and for this reason, and, and, and since, because they've done all this against God, lifestyle changes. See, it seems to me that rejection of God leads to depravity of life. But which comes first, the chicken or the egg? I don't think we all set out to shut down God and do our own things. I think we are enticed by the desires of this world. And then we want to shut down God because we realize He's saying we shouldn't. It goes both ways, maybe. You see, the rejection of the true God does not always come first with immoral conduct being merely the product of idolatry. Verse 24 suggests that it's the lusts of their hearts. They're already present, and they're the motivating factor for why we do the things that we do. 
James tells us that, it, it, that sin begins in our hearts and it starts from there and it grows and it matures and eventually it kills. Someone may say, I want to indulge my sinful desires and lusts, but how can I do this with God always looking over my shoulder? Well, it's simple. Just get another God. Get one that will let you do those things. And so that's what we've done throughout history. People have created gods to permit their indulgences of sin. And then they will do that for that God. And they'll applaud them from their heavens. We want to live in a society that has no moral demands upon us. That I can do what I want. Yet... We have moral demands and expectations on other people. How dare they go into an elementary school and kill somebody? How dare they walk into a grocery store and start shooting? How dare they... And we can be in name thing after thing after thing. But we don't want them to tell us what we can't do. And so we impugn our morality and our expectations on people that fits our needs. That's the rationality of our own human thinking. But if there's a standard that's been set by the Creator God that everybody has to adhere to, then the morality of the world conforms to that. but we don't want to conform, do we? There's an emphasis on the unnaturalness of this depravity Paul speaks about, especially in the sexual relationships. Verse 24 is about sexual immorality and such. Epithemia, which means desires or lusts or passions, and in this context, specifically about sexual lusts and passions. And Paul, Paul considers such desires to be part of the fallen nature of the flesh. In Ephesians 2.3, he says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. The same word. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, that for all that is in this world, the desires, this epithumia, this, the passions of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. We're exchanging God's design for our own design. Impurity is the word that's used in, in this passage of Scripture, akatharsia. Uh, uh, and it means sexual impurity. And so Paul is telling us that such indulgences dishonor and degrades the body. Verse 26 is really about, he uses the word dishonorable passions. It's specifically and particularly about lesbianism. So he says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. 
For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Their woman literally should be translated, their female. There's a different word for woman or women. But this specifically is a word that is used to identify specific gender trait. Alright? And so he says, their females exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. They exchange, same word that he uses in verse 23 and verse 25, when we exchange idols for God, they're exchanging natural for unnatural here in this relationship. So they're having unnatural relationships with women that should have been with men. And if there is no true creator God, then we have no inherent basis on calling any problems with this and opposing homosexualism because without God, who's to say what is natural and what is unnatural? And if chance evolution has its way and it is the supreme principle of life, then there are no norms, so whatever is, is good. But if God is involved in this, then it's his way and not mine. Verse 27 specifically is about male homosexuality. And he says, And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for another, one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Again, the expression, the men, is a different word that's not anthropos. It's a different word that is used to speak specifically to gender identity, the male of the species. And so he's saying that they are consumed with passions, that they are inflamed with such lust that dominates and drives them to an uncontrollable, all-consuming passion and fire for homosexual relationship. John MacArthur in his commentary on Romans makes this statement. He says, there is this burning level of lust among the homosexual that defies accurate description and is rarely known among heterosexuals. And then he goes on to explain that if anyone could stand to read the description of the acts and the things that are done within the homosexual subculture, they will see the truth in that statement. Now listen, this does not mean that everyone who has homosexual tendencies gives way to those things, all right? But when they go into the debaseness of life, it really gets severe. It's like a forest fire that's out of control. Now he makes this statement that is their error, their error, plané. It refers to wandering or roaming off the path of decency and morality. Their error is that they decide they're going to take a different road. And they're going to wander off the path that is decent and honorable and moral. And they choose to walk a different way, is what he's saying. Paul goes on to say that as a result of their indecent acts, that they receive in themselves the due penalty. Now, it refers to eternal punishment, obviously. But it's a present participle. So what's happening is in their present life, they're also receiving some of the ill effects of their sinful behavior. Back in the late 70s and early 80s, AIDS was, uh, while it did not begin within the homosexual culture, 
It was spread rapidly around the world in that. And then it didn't stay just there, but it then made its way into other venues of people. Because of drug use, because sexual indiscretions. Today, we have a, a new virus that has just come onto the American continent. There are nine cases that they know of right now in America called monkeypox. Right. We're still trying to figure out that um, how they got it. But it seems, as the CDC has just re- recently reported, the CDC says, says it's not clear how the individuals were exposed to monkeypox, but cases include people who self-identify as men who have sex with men. I just took that off their website this week. So many in the homosexual culture try to reinterpret Paul's use of the word natural, saying that it's only referring to men and women who are naturally heterosexual. All right? And they try to be homosexual or lesbian when they shouldn't. And so they're giving up their natural way, but others are by nature in same-sex relationship because that's how they're created. Let me speak plainly about this. That's not what Paul means. He's talking about specific, not what my desire is. He's talking about gender and that men with men is unnatural, that women with women is unnatural. And that's how God has created it. So he specifies that in Genesis chapter three when he, he's, he's talking to them about their sinfulness and how he created them in chapter two he made them male and female and that's how God governs it natural to the word of God is male and female only but he gets into more specifics about sexual relationship throughout the rest of the Bible And he qualifies it that this intimacy is only morally upright when it is confined within the bonds of marriage. And anything outside of that goes against God's standards. All right? So the boundary is is within marriage only. But we've got to be careful here. It's, it's not that, that homosexuality is regarded as the worst sin. In fact, it's simply just the natural result of sin, which is the sin he's speaking to here in Romans 1, the sin of willfully ignoring and suppressing the knowledge of God and trying to live our way rather than His way. And it is just a symptom like being an alcoholic or like being a kleptomaniac or like being a liar. Whatever it is that your sin that you habitat with in life and you seem to be comfortable with, sin is sin. But the greatest thing, he says, what's creating these sins is because we want to push God away. And when we do that, he turns us over to our own sinfulness. We've got to be careful here that we don't just push and put people in different categories because in God's eyes, there are no classifications of sin. If you've broken one command, if you've done one thing against the law of God, you're guilty of them all. 
verses 28 to 32 is going to catalog some of the sins. And we'll get into that next week. Describing this Gentile sinful lifestyle. And, and, and the depths of depravity that is seen in Romans chapter 1 verse 32. He says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. That is rebellion in full. Now, by showing how the Gentiles, those who, who, who have just general revelation by observing creation, and they don't have the law of God as the Israelite nation did because God gave it specifically to them, we still break the commands of God, the code of ethics that we know by understanding who He is that they are there. And so we'll see that Paul's going to lay the, the, all of this down and he's going to wrap it all up in Romans 3.20 and lets us know that, that by works of law, no person is ever going to be justified before God. We're going to need grace. We can't do it. Our rebellious nature continues not only to create issues with our relationships with God, it continues to separate us and pull us apart in our relationships with other people. There's only one thing that helps us overcome this sinfulness of our hearts and restore us to a right relationship with God and a right relationship with other people, and it is surrendering ourselves and our hearts and our desires and our intellect to the Lordship of Jesus. When you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, it's going to change how you live. Let's pray. Father, we are we're ashamed, at least I am, of the stupidity of my actions in life. How I want to do it my way, how I want to suppress your truth and say it doesn't matter. Oh, it's okay. It's just a little fudge on this. and It's not as, as if I'm a murderer. Father, sin it has crept into my heart and it has ruined my relationship with you. And I have sinned against people and I've damaged my relationships with them. And it's all because I still want to sometimes... Hold down the truth of who you are and, and, and not live faithful. Father, help us just to surrender to your leading, to your guidance, to your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.